Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Pastor Ben Teethy for his message. Hey, I want to say a big happy Father's Day to everybody. Thank you to all the men who are a part of Desert Life Church and make it happen. And you make it happen in so many ways. You serve in the life of the church. You sow, you sacrifice, you financially support the vision of the church. You support each other. You run connect groups. You do working bees on site with us. You lift heavy things. And uh, it's kind of what the dads are good for in our house. Hey, Danielle. And uh, you just really do an amazing job. But you do more than that. You help us build a culture in our church of care where the the masculinity that is uh, evidenced by the men of our church is not bullish, it's not domineering, it's not alpha male, it's not bogan, it's just God-honoring and it's strong and it's loving and it's humble and it's meek-spirited and I believe that the men of our church go a really long way to showing the world a little bit more of Jesus and that's important, isn't it? So I want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads, I want to say thank you to all the men. Not only do you do a great job, but in so many ways you help by bringing your families along to church and you release them to serve in in different things. Uh, The ladies of the church do an amazing job. The youth of the church do an amazing job. The kids in the church do an amazing job. And it's just so wonderful. You know, I've been to a number of churches in the last couple of weeks and I said to some of the people we were uh, with at a wedding at Ben and Belinda, Ben and Belinda Gardner's wedding yesterday, which is pretty cool. They got married down at Simpsons Gap. It was just brilliant. And uh, they got, I was saying to some people at the wedding, you know, it's amazing. Nothing makes you appreciate your church like visiting other people's churches. And uh, then you just realize what a great bunch of people we have here because we just don't have so many of the problems that many of the other churches have um, because we have a good team of assassins. They take out the problem people. No, they don't. They don't. Um, And you're doing awesome. So thanks for being amazing. I do want to say this. uh, Father's Day, it can be a hard day for some people, can't it? We honor dads. And, uh, you know, Father's Day always has mixed emotion in our house because my children, um, look, they're, they're not, oh, a couple of them are in the room actually, just block your ears, girls. My children suffer from the misguided belief that I'm Batman. Because um, I've just said to them, I'm not saying I'm Batman, I'm just saying no one's ever seen us in the same room together, that's all. You draw your own conclusions. Um, and I also told them I invented electricity when they were young and they, they believed me. And. <laughs> They also thought I invented football at one point in time, too, and they were sadly disillusioned of that truth in grade one. Was it grade one, Mrs. Schmidt? Prep. Prep. When, my, when my oldest daughter went to school, she had trouble remembering her school teacher's name, Mrs. Schmidt. And uh, so <laughs> Danielle's shaking her head saying, don't tell this story. <laughs> it's a harmless story. It's a harmless story. And so we had, to develop, we had to develop a family. You know, how many people know learning pedagogies mean there's all different types of way to help people learn, isn't there? And it's a father's role to ensure that you help people learn. And so we had to uh, create a pedagogy for India so that she would learn her teacher's name when she first went. Mrs. Schmidt, it's, you know, a one-syllable word, but it can be complex, especially when you see it written down. And so we just taught her... Um, a poem on how to remember Mrs. Schmidt's name and it goes like this. (laughs) This is the gift that's kept on giving for 14 years. The poem just goes like this. Mrs. Schmidt, Mrs. Schmidt, my dad says, you're full of beans. And it helped her remember the teacher's name. And uh, anyway, that's just the gift that keeps on giving. So my kids have grown up with a terrible, terrible trauma 
And yet somehow, every now and then, they think I'm cool as a dad. Uh, They haven't yet discovered that I'm not. Please don't fill them in on that. It won't help my cause at all. Uh, But we have a great time, and and, um, I'm blessed with the wonderful children that that God has given us and that Danielle has moulded into people more like her than more like me, which would be greatly problematic for the universe. Um, But it's also got some undertones of pain for people as well. You know, for many of us, fathers are complex figures, aren't they? And Father's Day can be a day where the complexity of the presence or absence of fathers in our lives greatly marks our lives and greatly impacts us. And it does that because it's, it's a complex thing being a human, isn't it? How many people know, even for yourself, that um, great light and great darkness is present in your life at any given time? Isn't that true? And you have some wonderful things in your life. You have wonderful gifts. You have wonderful talents. You have wonderful strengths and you bring so many great things to the table of life, don't you? Do, do, do you? <laughs> you do know that about yourself, right? You're, you're, you're allowed to like humbly say, yes, Pastor Ben, can recognise what you're saying. Um, and you do bring many wonderful things and sometimes your challenge is that you don't know those great things that you bring about yourself and so you have a sense of inferiority or you have a sense of unworthiness because of different messages that have been sent to you or a life script that has been provided to you and so you tend to doubt yourself and not value the very valuable things about yourself and on the one hand that's a problem we have but on the other hand um, we, it's not just that we have wonderful things in our lives but we also have some broken things in our lives don't we? We have, we have weaknesses, we have challenges in our character, don't we? Do you, do you too? Yes. Guys, I'm putting myself out there and like you're, you're just giving me nothing. I'm like the worm crawling along and the, the, and the eagle just swoops and snatches it away. Um, you have deep challenges in your life because of various things. You've been hurt before, haven't you? And the way that you respond to that hurt sometimes can carry, you can carry it with you for a long time. As a pastor, you know, I talk to people all the time and I'll talk to people who are in their um, 60s, 70s and 80s sometimes for, and, and they'll be carrying and reflecting hurt in their life that happened when they were seven or eight or four. And it will, it will affect them for such a long time as life then becomes a process of adjusting to the hurt on the one hand and living out of its pain. And then on the other hand, defending yourself so it never happens again. So you can create and construct a whole way of living that is basically scripted for you by terrible and painful experiences that you've had. Isn't that true? Can you think of some of yours? Can you tell me some so I feel better about myself? Um, then, of course, you've got great temptations in your life. You, you're a human being and you have deep desires and some are really good but then sometimes you overfocus on them and they become just a little bit too they take too much place in your life and and our hearts according to John Calvin are an idol factory and it's so true that we are expert at uh, bringing things up out of ourselves that might seem harmless to anyone else and yet to us it can just become an idol can't it fame pleasure power position privilege prestige appearances we, 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 we can manufacture things out of our lives that, that they sort of even replace God and become our God and we don't know it, but we worship it and, 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 and we, it, we focus on it. We direct our whole life chasing these things. And, you know, it starts off benign. It doesn't seem like it matters that much at the start. And oftentimes it doesn't. You know, when you get your first job and you sort of suddenly go, oh, man, it's great to have some money. Then you have kids and then you forget about that feeling for a very long time, a very, very long, very long time. <laughs> And then, but then they get old enough for you to make them work. 
and um, you know like all, we actually have seven children but you know um, sort of four of them you've never met because we've shipped them off to labor for us and send back money well, that would be just living the dream wouldn't it Danielle um, but you know you, you start making money and then and then it's very easy to let the joy of having some resource turn into an idol isn't it and then the joy of having some resource becomes a hunger for resource and it's not a resource anymore it's actually ceased being a resource and now it's a source and you go to that source to meet your needs to meet your needs for emotional bolstering sometimes they call that retail therapy in in other conversations where what we do is we use stuff to cater for our emptiness and it can start off fine man it's great having a nice big screen tv talk to someone recently and they said pastor ben is it wrong of me to to have a great big television I said, well, it probably would depend what you're watching on the television. I said, well, I'm not watching anything bad, but I love football and I love sport and I have to see it in high-definition, vibrant colour, surround sound. I said, you could go to a sporting event to see all that. But no, um, you can't often in Alice Springs. So, uh, but it's fine. And they said, but I just want to know, would God have a problem with me having such an expensive TV? I said, well, it depends on whether you have the TV or whether the TV has you. And so one good thing to do would be to make sure that your TV doesn't become your, your temple, that your lounge room doesn't become a temple where you sit and worship all the time on your own. And what you could do is you could turn it into a place of ministry by finding other people who like stuff on TV too, and especially if they're lonely, and especially if they're isolated or they're broken. Maybe they're new to town. Maybe they've suffered some great loss and they just need someone to zone out with them. Why don't you invite them over and give them chips and watch TV with them? And then your television has become a ministry tool. See, so stuff can be redemptive. Stuff can be useful. Stuff is a resource. But when it becomes a source, and it's so easy for us to do that, huh? with everything in life. People are like that. People are just a tremendous resource because we need each other, don't we? You and I, we're wired as social beings, actually. It's part of our neurology. And some of you, even the biggest introvert in the room, the truth is you're still wired as a social being doesn't mean you don't need people if you're an introvert it just means that um, sometimes the way you give of yourself to people can be quite tiring and costly for you so then you need to go and recharge your batteries by like mulling around on your own and spending you know 28 hours looking for memes on the internet and then you recharge your batteries and then you're good to go again and see people again um so so but but people they serve a tremendous role in our lives the truth is and I heard a wonderful presentation recently uh, by a psychologist on drug addiction, Dr. Robbie Sondrager. And this is the one, thing, one of the things he said. Do you know what the opposite of drug addiction is? Community. Community. And it's actually, uh, addiction is not about the quest for drugs and the quest for euphoria. It's about the compensation for alienation and rejection and loneliness. And the number one best way for someone to recover from any type of addiction, which there's lots of addictions, not just drugs, uh, there's lots of invisible ones too, like food and spending and drinking and retail therapy. You can be addicted to approval. Ever heard of being an approval junkie? Um, but community is the opposite to addiction, a healthy community. And so people can be a tremendous resource for us where they help us, but also equally what we can do is we can turn them from a resource into a source. Where now, rather than being used by God to gather around our lives, they replace God and we go to them to meet our needs. And, you know, the thing is, there are no perfect people, are there? Some of you look surprised about that. Let me just sugarcoat that painful bit of truth a little bit more. There are no perfect people, are there? Turn the person next to you and say, I now know your secret. You are not perfect. Turn to the other person and say, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that for a while. been demonstrating it in my behaviours. 
See, because there are no perfect people, people are a wonderful resource because the, the good that is in them can flow into my life and the bad that is in them, I can sort of mitigate for it and journey with them to bring them to wholeness when they're a resource. When I see them as a source, all I want to do is milk the good in their life and have it flow into me, but the bad that is in their life, if they are my source, will also colour my life and come into my life and then it will cause me great disappointment and great pain. Isn't that true? We, we all have this hunger for perfect people to come and meet our needs in our soul. Remember when you, if this has ever happened to you, remember when you first fell in love with someone? You poor, misguided, deluded, insane individual. Not because you fell in love with someone. That's not why you're insane. Why you're insane is because in the early stages of infatuation, your brain says, people are very complex. And uh, look, the truth is, if you put two people together long enough, they'll actually become aware of a whole bunch of reasons why they shouldn't stay together. And so what would happen is without God having wired human brains and souls the way he's wired them, people would probably never get together. Women would all get together and go shopping and men would get together and like kill each other with sticks and stuff like that and play games and, and, and things. And so God had to create a way. How do we like get, get people together? So when in the early stages of infatuation, which like keeps you interested in someone, there's relationship cycles. This is deeply technical. The early stages are called how you're doing stage, where you just notice... <laughs> Wow, wow, how you doing? In the back of the mind, you see that person, you hear, how you doing? Hello, lady. I can remember when the early stages of infatuate. Some of you are going, I've never had that experience. It's very sad, very sad. In the early stages of meeting Danielle, I was interested in her. And I could be in a room of 50 people, but if she walked into that room, I was like suddenly aware the fox is in the building. You know what I'm saying? I was interested in her. Um, and uh, that's the early stages, which is just like notice and attention, and they captivate your attention. That's really important. And then what happens is, but you could have that with 10 different people. You know, I'm not encouraging you to, but it's just the way that you're wired, that you could be interested in a lot. I was a young adults pastor, and the amount of times I sat with uni students, girls or guys, guys and girls, who were like, I don't know whether I date Brad, Craig, Samuel, or Ivan, you know. And it's like, well, simple, just check all of their bank balances, and then look at their family tree, and then give that to your pastor, and he'll make the choice for you. They can all put in a resume. We'll help you with this problem. But, of course, you can be interested in a lot of people. I don't know. I'm so interested. So, so if you don't progress beyond the interest stage, then you'll have this little conundrum. But you do progress beyond the interest stage because that's how relationships form. So when you progress beyond the interest stage, you get to the infatuation stage. And the infatuation stage is basically should best be called temporary insanity. <laughs> in the infatuation stage, you know you've ever heard the, sci- the saying, love is blind? Yeah, well, well, it's not that love is blind, it's that people are dumb, basically, in the infatuation stage. And so the infatuation stage, you are blinded to the person's shortcomings for the most part. They can do terrible things and you won't notice it. They could say terrible things that are deeply hurtful to you and you may not even be aware of it. And, and actually, you may eradicate some sense of boundaries from your relationship, which can be very, very harmful, by the way. Um, and in which case, people will do terrible and dysfunctional things, but the person's so infatuated, they overlook it all and they don't even notice. They just have stars in their eyes. As they sing the John Denver classic, You fill up my senses Like a storm in the desert. 
sorry, sorry. Um, and in, you're infatuated. Now, what happens in your brain is your brain releases a chemical. A chemical is called phenylethylamine, or we just shorten it for PEA when we talk about it because it's so much easier to talk about. And phenylethylamine is a cocktail of drugs that your brain, which is the best pharmacy outlet in the whole universe, your brain, still synthetically, human science cannot even come close to copying what the brain is able to do just because you drank some carrot juice, ate some veggies, and had a bit of fibre and protein in your diet. It's really amazing. And, and your brain produces this chemical, phenylethylamine, PEA. You get PEA flooding through your system when you're in the infatuation stage. And it acts as a euphoria, as a euphoric drug. And so you feel good. Remember the infatuation stage where you got like... <laughs> butterflies in the tummy? And you walked around thinking you're on cloud nine. <laughs> <laughs> And Danielle would just bat her eyelashes at me. And, um, you know, and I could just, I just thought she was the perfect, actually, I still think she's the perfect woman. So bizarre. It just hasn't, see, see, all the men, take a note. That's, that's called a deposit and you put enough deposits in the bank and then later on the interest pays off, you know what I'm saying? So it's just, it's just a free pastoral tip. You can interpret it any way you like. Make a deposit on a regular basis. So when you have phenylethylamine floating around your system, when you have phenylethylamine floating around your system, you, 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 you don't eat much. You know, it's called being lovesick, right? I can't eat because I'm just thinking about Brad, you know, and uh, it's, it blinds you to things. And, and so, but, you know, it's not just loving romantic relationships where you get phenylethylamine. You can get phenylethylamine from the high... <laughs> of a new social connection where you just... Some people, they, they go from friend to friend to friend to friend to friend their whole life. And do you know why they do that? Because they associate friendship with the hormonal feeling of the excitement of a new contact, which is exciting. You do get, you know, you, the people that you've just met, you think they're amazing. You think they're better than all the other friends you've had for 20 years and you want to hang out with more of them. And the temptation could be because of the infatuation stage. It's a different type of infatuation, not like in a weird way. Um, that, that Then you jump from friend to friend because every time the feelings wear off, you have to go find yourself a new relationship. But it's not that the person suddenly changed. It's that you changed and the chemicals that blinded you before to people's faults and the um, analgesic effect of that and the euphoric effect of that, um, it, it changed. And then this is where the danger is. If a person's a resource, when it wears off, you just learn how to build a healthy, transparent relationship. If the person is a source, once you no longer feel those feelings anymore, you've got to go and find those feelings at a different source again. And that's why some people change lovers, sexual partners, marriage partners, intimate partners every couple of years because the phenylethylamine period can last for six months to two years and then it just depends on what you're like, basically. And so people also are a terrible source, even though they're a great resource. We have these things inside us, don't we? Can you see what I'm saying? We, 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 we have great, wonderful things in our lives and we have great, broken things in our lives. Well... In the human wholeness sciences, let's call it that way, in the art and science of helping people come to wholeness, whether we talk from the psychologist's perspective, whether we talk from the counsellor's perspective, whether we talk from the discipleship perspective and teaching people how to walk into their identity in Christ and find wholeness in God, um, the truth is there's so many different labels we could put on why we are the way we are, where we are greatly wonderful and capable of amazing love and holiness, 
And on the other hand, why we are greatly flawed and capable of deep unholiness and incredible selfishness, aren't we? Nudge the person next to you say, don't worry, he's talking about me. Peter Scazzaro is an amazing writer, and if you ever get the opportunity to read any of his books, starting with the book, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I highly recommend that you avail yourself of the resource. One of the things he says in the book is that all human beings have a shadow side. A shadow side. And a shadow side is not the part of us we want everybody to see. What we do is when we're out with others, when we're in public, when we're, you know, preaching on the platform, what we do is we try to take our best step forward and make sure that people only see the bit of us that is, that is good and that we want them to see. You look at me going, well, you failed at that, buddy. Sorry about that. Um, and, and we put our best foot forward and we show them this is who I, this is the bits that I want you to think of me, the bits I want you to see of me. And then, but we have this other side which we kind of lock away back in the deep vaults of our life, the bits we don't want people to see of us. The mistakes that we're very capable of repeating and the cycles that we have, the addictions we have, the temptations we face that we just hope no one would ever find out about. The, the, the secret and private behaviours and feelings and thoughts that we have. And, and, and we just hope that never ends up on anyone's blog, don't we? We all have those things about ourselves Internal things, thoughts, feelings, choices, desires, compulsions. Our lives are actually full of it. And and the Bible constantly acknowledges that our lives are actually full of it. The the Bible calls that collection of things our, our flesh, our carnal self, the unredeemed parts of our nature that we are still learning to surrender to the cross of Jesus and still learning to let the Holy Spirit come and inhabit and transform and change those parts of us. That's, that's it. Peter Scazzaro summarizes it using the language of the counsellor and the psychologist, which he calls the shadow side. Listen to what he says. Your shadow, which you all have one, and when you're under the light, no one can see it because it's somewhere way back there. Your shadow is the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives, impure thoughts, things that, while almost are unconscious to you, strongly influence and shape your life and your behaviors and your feelings. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. And people know you have a version of you that is damaged. And is mostly hidden. And what happens for some people is sometimes rather than learn how to process that part of life, they don't. And it actually spills out into the public domain. And oftentimes that's what an actual breakdown is. is It's an overflowing of a person's inability to maintain hiding their shadow, which has remained undealt with, unacknowledged and unbrought into the light for so long that they can no longer hold it down anymore. And it just spills over and their lives go out of control. But, you know, the thing is every human has that potential. So you don't sit here thinking, oh, yeah, that's Bob, and oh, man, man, Peter really needs to hear that, that, that sermon. No, you need to hear this sermon because you have a shadow and you have a flesh and you have great good in you, but you also have great history of brokenness and fracture and great potential for evil just like anyone else does. And one of the key humane skills is to learn, yes, there's good things in me, but there is potential for evil and I should always keep my eye on that ball. It's deluded the person who thinks they don't have that potential. Peter Scazzaro says your shadow may reveal itself in very subtle ways through a need to rescue other people. How many people know rescuer mentality? That's about your weakness, not about your compassion. Always. 
The need to be liked by people. See, they're a source, not a resource. The need to be noticed all the time. An inability to stop working. You can't ever recreate because you just need to be needed and you need to do, 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 do because all your identity is wrapped up in the things that you do instead of who you are. So you're a human doing. You're no longer a human being because you never have being time. A tendency toward isolation, that's a shadow. The inability to connect with other people, the refusal to do so. I've been hurt in the past, that's shadow talk. Oh, no one makes an effort with me, that's shadow talk. And people know the book of Proverbs says, if a man would be friendly, if a man would have friends, he must show himself friendly. Isn't that interesting? That, that's so wonderful about the Bible. It redeems my life and it says, Ben, you can drive this in your life. You're not a helpless victim. You have great power and great dignity because of who God has made you. And you do too. A tendency towards rigidity, the inability to give people grace, the inability to make some rules flexible because sometimes situations require flexibility. Rigidity. Aspects of your shadow might be intentionally sinful, but they could also just simply be weaknesses. They could also be just wounds from the past. And they tend to appear in ways that we try to protect ourselves from feeling vulnerable or exposed. Peter Scazzaro says this, and many authors would agree with him, that the shadow side has destructive tendencies if it's left alone and unexamined. And the problem for you and I is that when it comes to the yucky and icky stuff in the shadow part of our lives, we would rather leave it alone and unexamined and do this wonderful thing called denial, which is not just a river in Egypt, but a terrible human behaviour, where we would rather lock our shadow in the trunk and push it deep under the bed and only focus on the pretty things in our lives. But if it's left unexamined and if it's left unidentified, then we can't throw light on it and we can't deal with it. So why am I telling you all this on Father's Day? Well, I'll tell you this, because the truth is the presence or absence of a father in your life is profoundly impacting your shadow areas of your life. Some of us had wonderful dads that loved us and therefore our shadow is diminished in that area. Some of us have had terrible pain-filled fathers and pain-filled childhoods and that has definitely impacted our shadows. And some of us had ambiguous fathers who were brilliant in some things and terrible in others, which is what my kids will say about me. Maybe not brilliant. Adequate? Give me like a high five or a... They're giving me nothing. They're giving me nothing. Um, they are, um, even if you didn't have a father, the absence of someone who was wired by God to model for you love, correction, discipline, how you see authority, even the way that you view God in a healthy way, the absence of that type of person in your life, that's left a mark, that's left a shadow mark on your life. And most of the time, did you hear the way Peter Scazzaro talked about your shadow? untamed emotion a collection of untamed emotion and that's what it really is often our shadow is revealed to us in just the way that we're feeling which by the way some of us are just terrible at even being aware of that other people know what you're feeling and you don't know what you're feeling because you've learned to lock things down and, and lock them away and then some of us we're terrible at it because we let how we feel dictate everything that we do rather than letting what we believe dictate what we do. And then when we, when we let what we believe dictate what we do, our feelings tend to come more into line. But not always because we do have a shadow. And a shadow is often revealed in the way I feel. So when Father's Day is coming up and you get that dread in the pit of your stomach, I personally have to wrestle with this. I've got a dad 
Our family history is terribly broken, terribly violent, terribly abusive. But now I've got an old dad who's in his late 70s that's just a regretful man who most of the people in our family, most of his family, most of the kids don't even ever want to talk to him or see him. And I've had to journey over the years towards a place of forgiveness and a place of reconciliation. I've shared with you my story before about having to come to a place of forgiveness and sit with him, tell him I love him, hug him. And I tell you, the untamed emotion all through that process. And even in the lead up to Father's Day, sometimes I think, oh, I'm going to have to call my dad and a little flutter of a feeling will stir. And I could easily go, well, it's a busy day and, you know, I've got stuff happening and I've got kids and oh, maybe I'll send him a card in two months' time or something like that. But see, that's me leaving my, leaving my shadow unidentified and unexamined. And I'm letting the, the feeling of the shadow dictate my behaviour. Why am I saying all this to you? In Mark chapter 4, Mark tells us a story which I'm not going to unpack, but I'm just going to read to you and give you one statement. We sung about this story today in the worship time. Mark chapter 4 from verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. In Mark's gospel, travel is a very important metaphor for for discipleship, actually. So when Mark tells you a story about Jesus saying to others, let's go over to the other side, he's telling you a story about Jesus, but now he's giving you an invitation about the gospel to cross over. And Mark's telling you a story about the fact that there's a great big body of water that Jesus wants to take his disciples over that water and get them to the other side. And if you read the whole chapter, on the other side of that water, there's deliverance, there's a revelation of Christ, there's healing for a man possessed by demons who is just going and saying, let's go over to the other side. And you know, sometimes you and I, we need to be sensitive to the call of Jesus as well. You have many great things in your life, but you do have some brokenness. You have many victories, but you've got some defeats. You've got great light, but there's some darkness. And then over all that darkness, the invitation of Mark in Jesus' gospel is, but would you go over to the other side of that stuff? Well, well, how are you going to do that? Verse 36, a powerful phrase. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. That's the discipleship journey, isn't it? Instead of going the way the crowd's always gone, the way the current of my life has always taken me, all the people in my life that have become my source instead of my resources, I'm going to leave all that behind. And then I'm going to look at Jesus and I'm going to say, just as you are, Jesus, get in my boat and cross to the other side with me. Not Jesus, if you were nicer. Jesus, if you'd give me a pony. Jesus, if you'd give me more success at work. Jesus, if you'd heal my headache. Jesus, if you'd do this great thing for me. No, no, it's not Jesus, if you would. It's Jesus, just as Jesus is. Jesus on Jesus' own terms. That's who I want in my boat. Let's cross over to the other side. It says this, there were also other boats with them. And where the story is going, Mark's building up to something. And what he's building up to is there's all types of boats that you can cross through what will become the stormy oceans of life. There's all types of boats. But in the story, we will learn the best type of boat to cross the other side one is the one with Jesus in it. And Jesus is only in the boat that takes him just as he is. Well, a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Do you ever feel that way in life? Ever feel that way that your shadow sometimes raises up and wants to swamp you? Negative emotion, your response, the hurt you feel, the pain you feel, the failure of others to be a good source, the wrestle in your own soul over the fact that your heart's an idol factory and you've created something and replaced God and now you're trying to find God again. Ever been there? Your response to rejection, your response to pain, your response to temptation. 
Your response to isolation and loneliness, which is so painful. Your response to grief, which grievous things should never happen to you, but they sure do. And then you've got to respond, don't you? And storms of life can just erupt and happen all the time. And Mark is not leaving you as a bystander to the story. But when he tells you a furious squall woke up, he's recruiting you as a participant in the story. Because he knows as a human being that lived in the first century, all these thousands of years later, people are going to be reading. And in our lives, furious squalls can move all the time over our lives. Isn't that true? You have to understand for Jewish people, this is why this story was told and told and retold about Jesus. Of all the millions of things that he did, why was this story selected to be circulated? I'll tell you why. Because for Jewish people, water is a deeply scary thing. It's a, it's a symbol of chaos. A symbol of chaos. The apocalyptic writings in the Bible point forward to heaven. They say, one day there'll be no more sea. And all the surfers and the fishermen and the free divers and the, and the windsurfers, they all say, what? No more sea, but what are we going to do in heaven? But it's symbolic language. And what it means is because the, the, a stormy ocean, a choppy sea, a big body of water for Jewish people always represents the potential for chaos. At any moment, one minute, everything's fine. The next minute, you're nearly drowning and being overcome. The Jewish people were farmers. They were land-based people. And so they were always ambiguous about going down to the sea in ships. Because it was a scary place. It was a place, God, when God created the world, he brought the earth up out of the chaos, out of the murky, watery deep. He raised up the earth and he blessed it and life could grow there. But, but the beasts live in the deep. In the apocalyptic writing, it's always up out of the abyss, out of this oceany pit that's filled with stormy waters that the beast, that the, that the Antichrist comes. You've read the stories, right? Symbolic pictures of the fact that life has darkness lurking and at any moment chaos can break out. And in this story, what they have is, is, is Jesus saying, we've got to cross over our chaos. We've got to cross over our shadow. We've got to cross over our darkness. And you need me in your boat just as I am. Invite me in and cross over with me. Well, it sounds good, but then listen what happens. As they're crossing over, it's not smooth sailing with Jesus. How many people know that? Some of us were recruited by a gospel that said, give your life to Jesus and it'll be smooth sailing the rest of time. Can I tell you something? It's such a lie. I'll tell you something else. There is no smooth sailing for any human in planet Earth. There will be smooth sailing one day when we stand before him face to face and he brings us into a renewed heaven and a renewed earth and we'll take off our crowns and we'll cast them at his feet, won't we? But that's not this day. This day we live in a fallen planet, in a broken world and we ourselves are still allowing the Holy Spirit to come and sanctify our brokenness. A furious squall comes up and they were nearly swamped. I want you to notice those words, nearly swamped. Hey, listen, if you're going through something, being nearly swamped, is not being actually swamped. Sometimes our shadow rises, chaos comes, feelings happen, and we feel like, man, I think I'm going to drown here. No, but you only think you're going to drown. You're not drowning. Being nearly swamped is not being actually swamped. And they said, listen to this, and Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. What a wonderful detail. Mark the historian. It's called historical specificity. We know he was there because only someone like him who was there would have such a tiny little detail. Not just Jesus was sleeping. He's sleeping with his head on a cushion. Resting. Resting. And the disciples did what you and I do all the time when we feel like we're about to drown in our circumstances and our life. Jesus, don't you care if we drown the disciples? They woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Which is the wrong response. Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And he said, be quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
And listen, first they were afraid and they had no faith, but listen to how they respond. Then they were terrified. First of all, they were afraid of the storm, but then Jesus calmed the storm and now they're terrified of Jesus. And they ask each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? There's a better question. There's a better question. They missed it. They missed their opportunity. The question is not, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? It should have been this. Who is this that can sleep through storms? This symbol of chaos. That's why the power of Jesus walking on the water, remember the story? It's also such a powerful story because it symbolizes lordship. It symbolizes Jesus as the Messiah spoken of in the scriptures who would come and tame the chaos of the deep and walk on the water where the beasts live and overcome the enemy, overcome the Antichrist, overcome sin and overcome death. And for the Jewish people, the, 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 the sea, the ocean, the, the big bodies of water were symbolic of all of that. So when Jesus calms that storm, what Mark is saying is, this is so much more than a physical miracle. This is a miracle about what Jesus does when chaos and shadow erupts. When Jesus walks on water, what it says is, all of the darkness is under his feet and he is the one in whom you should put your trust. If you trust in him and you keep your eyes on him, then he'll get you out of your boat and even you could learn to walk on your waters when you never think you could. Because Jesus sleeps in the boat, the disciples assume Jesus doesn't care. He's not doing what I want. Maybe he doesn't care. You've ever felt that, haven't you? And sometimes we justify what we perceive to be an inactivity of God as a sanction of our own brokenness. I was with someone recently. They said they were having an affair on their partner and they said, but, but God knows I love this person. He could have stopped me from doing it. Well, that's probably the stupidest excuse for sin and brokenness that you'll ever hear. And yet I regularly hear it from people, not in this church, other places where they're not perfect. Because we would say, you know, the disciples say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? You don't seem to be doing anything, don't you care? Jesus, if, why did you let this bad stuff happen to me, don't you care? Jesus, why didn't you stop me from Nelly being swamped, don't you care? But it's not that he doesn't care, it's that he does reign and rule. In the Hebrew worldview... Sleep and rest are the ultimate act of faith. That's why on one day out of every seven, the Jewish people do a Sabbath. Shabbat, the Hebrew word means stop. A Sabbath is this, a stoppage. It's a stoppage of work. It's a stoppage of toil. It's a stoppage of labor. And every sleep, every rest, every recreation, the celebration in Psalm 23 that God makes me lie down in green pastures beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. He gives me rest. Rest is the ultimate expression of triumph over evil. Rest. That's why God creates the world. He brings something wonderful out of chaos and then he rests at the end. Not because he's tired and needs to rest. He rests saying, now there's nothing else to conquer. I alone reign. So when Jesus is sleeping in that boat, Jesus understands storms will come and wind and waves will howl. And it will be scary for some people. Unless they understand that the one who sleeps, sleeps because he reigns. And so is not panicked about your situation. Is not panicked about your storm. Is not panicked about your shadow. Is not insecure about your fractures and your brokenness, but came to tame them. Peter Scazzaro says your shadow is your untamed emotion. Mark says actually it's a stormy sea that Jesus wants to shout at. Quiet and be still. He wants to walk over the top of it and say, it's under my feet. You get out of your boat, you come walk with me, it'll be under your feet too. Jesus calms the storm. In this story, they get to the other side 
And then the story transitions. It's not a story about a storm at sea. It's a story about a storm inside an individual. And what Jesus did to the storm at sea, he does to the storm of the individual, the man, the demoniac. His name is Legion. Jesus said, what is your name? And the demon answered, our name is Legion, for we are many. He has so many things inside him. Driven him crazy. And Jesus says, come out. And the same word that calmed the storm drove this storm off a cliff. For the first time in history, pigs flew. Bacon was off the menu. I want to pray for you today because I can't deny in my personal, my own life, there's some really great things God's put in my life and I probably work my best to only ever let you see those things. But there's some deep flaws in my life, deep brokenness. There's a shadow in my life. And on days like Father's Day, I have to acknowledge some of that shadow my dad, my dad has passed on to me through the weaknesses, through the rejection, through the pain, through the brokenness. And I've got to learn to give him grace because one day one of my daughters will probably stand on this stage and preach a Father's Day sermon and talk about the shadow that I have passed on to them. Live to give, girls. And you are too, you and I. I wonder if you'd bow your heads, close your eyes. Or as Sam says, bow your eyes and close your heads. I'd like to pray for you, family of God. I'm praying for you not just because it's Father's Day, but more using Father's Day as the catalyst because there's great joy for some of us on days like today, but there's also great pain. There's great presence of fathers in our lives or there's great absences of fathers in our lives. Some of us are wrestling with the pain of not being a father or a mother, not having a father or a mother. Some of us have lost loved ones. We've lost children. We've lost babies. We've lost parents. We've lost fathers. Some of us have alienated and isolated from our families and and on days like today it can be hard just to suck it up and paint a smile on your face when it can be tumultuous and a little storm can arise some of us we may never know it because we've left our shadow areas of life unexamined and unidentified so we don't even know what we've got going on underneath but whether you know it or not here's the thing my friend storms will come and sometimes they'll be around you And often they'll be inside you. And then you have a response to make. And your response is to say, do I call on the one who sleeps through storms and let him walk on my storm, let him calm my storm, let him drive my demons out of my life, let him drive my chaos out of my life? Or am I going to flounder along alone? Am I going to be one of those boats that didn't make it to the other side? Am I just going to wrestle along on my own? We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.